Welcome to Southern Farming Systems Podcast. I'm Michelle McClure, hosting James Manson, PhD student of Adelaide University and former SFS Senior Research and Extension Officer at the SFS 2022 Results Morning. James will be discussing Faber Beans Nitrogen Fixation and Canopy Management. Over to you, James. G'day everyone. So I'm going to talk a bit about nitrogen fixation and canopy management. And I see that relating to this, um, the issue of urea prices in 2022 um, in two ways. One, you grew faba beans last year, which means it's going to affect your nitrogen status of your soil coming into this year in a situation where fertilizer is really expensive. So understanding what last year's faba beans have done might be useful. And you're going to grow faba beans this year. You might be growing more faba beans than before because of those fertilizer prices just to try to reduce that bill. So we want to know how do we grow faba beans um, as best we can um, in this season, given the data that we have. So I'll talk about that first one first. We'll just touch on briefly rough numbers on how much nitrogen fixation we can get from faba beans. Then we'll focus on a sort of a summary and a synthesis of the last several years of SFS data on favorite bean management. Uh, and we'll finish with some tips for inoculation as you go into this season. So starting up with, you grew favorite beans last year. Good choice, not too biased, I hope. Uh, favorite beans have a high infixation rate per hectare that's partly related to their larger biomass than other pulses but also they use a, a high ratio of fixed nitrogen to soil nitrogen. So all pulses are taking some soil nitrogen out of the soil uh, and they do that preferentially. Favorite beans in particular prefer their own in-house nitrogen, which is good for us in a farming system. Chickpeas, for example, are pretty, well, they say lazy uh, in that they use soil nitrogen rather than fixed nitrogen, but Faber beans are, are good in that way. And there was lots of biomass around the place last year. I mean, if you got waterlogged, that, you know, that being the exception for those paddocks, but where it wasn't too waterlogged, we had decent biomass production that cool and wet spring. So that means they will hopefully have done a fair bit um, to help us with our nitrogen status this year. Two key questions though about that, that really uh, affect that outcome is did you check nodulation two months after emergence last year? Cause you really need to. Uh, if you had 30 or more nodules per plant, you'll be right. If you didn't, you're not all right. That probably was using a lot of soil nitrogen along the way. 50 nodules is sort of the rough optimum per plant. Um, and if you didn't check, you don't know. So it would have been good to have checked. So it's good to check every year about two months after emergence. But assuming you had good nodulation, question is how much extra end have I got in the system after harvest? So you take the grain off, obviously nitrogen goes out the door with that, but how much is left afterwards? And these are very rough estimates from a SARDI field P model, um, which I've been given with the explicit uh, requirement that I tell you that it's rough. Um, but I've got a few scenarios here. Um, first, it's sort of based on crop biomass and grain yield because the more biomass you have, the more nitrogen, the more grain yield, the more that nitrogen goes out the door. So if you had a chest height or higher biomass is what I'm sort of calling big biomass, which we stuck in the model is 15 tons of dry matter per hectare, but you had a really good yield of seven and a half tons per hectare, which I, I mean, I heard of someone getting seven tons last year. So this is like, you know, the best yields in the area. 
there's still going to be an extra 150 kilos of fixed nitrogen added to your system. So that's, that's pretty good. And the lower your yield is for those really big crops that were chest height or higher, the, the lower the yield, the more nitrogen left over because it didn't go out in grain. So 250 kilos roughly for a five-ton crop with a big biomass or 350 kilos is estimated for a really crappy big crop that didn't do anything. So that hopefully softens the blow a bit if that was you last year. Uh, just for comparison, if we had a really small crop of sort of knee to waist height, which I'm sort of calling five tons per hectare with a couple of tons per hectare grain yield, only 50 kilos of nitrogen is left after that. So if we're sowing fava beans really late, um, potentially waterlogging, although that's more complicated, really constrains the biomass growth. We have a really small crop, um, even if it yields relatively well, uh, the nitrogen fixation is not there because there's just not the biomass there. So that's important. Um, it just sort of has an agronomic implication too. Uh, the best favor bean crop is not necessarily the most efficient favor bean crop. It's not, we shouldn't be comparing it to cereals. Harvest indexes of 50% or more are not necessarily a good thing because we're growing favor beans. To, to when we grow favor beans, we're growing organic nitrogen as well as a grain crop. So taking a bit of a hit on our efficiency of biomass to grain gives us a bit more nitrogen in the system. And these numbers sort of roughly illustrate what you could expect. So that's favor beans last year. That's roughly what they're gonna be doing for you uh, this year when you're going into cereals or canola. Um, oh, one last question. With those favor beans, when will that nitrogen become available? It's obviously gone into the ground in the form of stubble. It's then got to be broken down and released to the crop. The answer is, I don't know, Emoji. Uh, it's very complicated. Uh, there was a really, there's a presentation at a GRDC update a couple of years ago that was fascinating and impenetrable. Uh, not their fault. It's very complicated microbiology and it's hard to say with any certainty what's actually gonna happen for release rates and dates of that organic nitrogen. So it's there, it's gonna be ticking away, but you're probably gonna be better off doing a deep nitrogen test before sowing to get a handle of where you're at and any other tests you wanna to do to um, keep estimating how much nitrogen is actually there being supplied. But uh, looking at fever beans for 2022, assume you're gonna grow some or more this year, um, bit of background on this data set. So SFS has been doing the HIZ pulse agronomy trials for Jason Brand, GIDC, if, uh, I can't see my number there, at least since 2013 to present. Our 2021 trials focused on wrapping up that canopy management work that we've been doing for, for some time now. Um, and we were you know, pretty successful uh, in doing that. I think there's roughly, I've sort of put it all together into a, a basic story. Uh, obviously, you may have questions or, or bits that need to be addressed, and they're probably more in a matter of fine-tuning um, these conclusions. So it's, it's really exciting to be able to put this together for you. The basic issue, just to summarize it, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of it more than me, um, but we've got trials, more than seven site years, indicating that yield potential is increased by early sowing and germination. So I mean crops that establish in mid-April or a bit after that and higher plant densities, meaning 25 plants per square meter or higher, when most people are sowing at about 15 plants per square meter. Obviously there are constraints to actually doing that on your farms. There's chocolate spot for one thing, bigger canopies, more humidity, more 
concerns about chocolate spot, more lodging from a bigger crop, uh, which causes harvesting issues. And there's the seeder capacity. Not all seeders can actually get enough seed through the tubes to get that higher plant density. Um, but we're interested in thinking about this still because last year, 2021, in a disease-free, moderately lodged Samira, sown on the 16th of April at 28 plants per square meter, yielded 9.2 tons per hectare, which is just a phenomenal yield and very exciting. It's disease-free. We blasted it with fungicides. Uh, that's just because what we do in trials just to make sure it's safe. Um, I know of growers who have had perfectly good disease control with spraying every once a month or something like that for three applications in the spring and get good control. So we do look after these crops, but that's just to reduce risk. It's a bit different in a paddock situation. But, you know, I can appreciate really 9.2 tons per hectare. That's a bit, a bit rich, isn't it? Um, well, for reference, the host paddock was doing six to seven tons per hectare, and that was sown a couple of weeks later than what I just said with 10 fewer plants per square meter. Uh, there were no edge effects. We measured several treatments, which are reported in your results book, so you can look at that. There were no edge effects in these trials in this year. Um, so it's a believable number, but there's still the question of why are grower yields much lower than, than trial yields at times. There's questions about whether you know, how you actually should manage a canopy. Could be soil acidity. Uh, our Lake Bolac results from two years ago were much lower than 2021, even though they were both favorable springs, much lower pH there could be at play. The access to flowers and dense canopies might be limited, although I was just speaking to an academic about that and they think that might not be such an issue. Paddock variability could be another thing that your paddock, the best parts of your paddock might be doing much better then the worst parts and that the way that dynamic plays out could be causing paddock averages to be lower than trial yields. It's a bit of a gray area. So that's just there up front for you to factor what follows um, and keep it in mind as we go. So uh, we wanna understand if we're gonna have big crops to get big yields, but also big headaches, and we wanna avoid those headaches, we need to understand the relationships between biomass and yield. Um, so that we can, you know, find the middle ground that we want to find. So here's some data. This is uh, eight varieties sown on the 16th of April. Um, and uh, yeah, 16th of April last year, we've got biomass on the x-axis and yield on the y-axis. And there's sort of a, a weak negative relationship. So actually the varieties that had a bit less biomass in this early sowing date were better off. And it was the same with the second sowing date of the 30th of April. So again, a weak negative relationship. You might've been slightly better off with these early sowing dates to have a bit less biomass. But it was completely the opposite. When we sowed on May 21, a really strong positive relationship between a similar range of biomass and yield. So when we were sowing late in the 21st of May, every bit of biomass was contributing to yield. And the thing that sort of unified the whole story was the harvest index. So this is just a, a beautiful curve here. It makes me happy. This is harvest index or what percent of the total mass of the crop went into yield. And we can see that we've got a, a pretty strong relationship there. Uh, so this means that yes, biomass can be a bit of a hindrance to yield, but uh, it depends on the sowing date. If we're sowing late, we really do want all the biomass we can get. 
Next factor we looked at was seeding rate and the plant density has a sort of a completely different relationship to what you can see here. So you can see here those early sowing dates, negative response to biomass, positive response to harvest index. But when you change uh, seeding rate, we increase biomass with more plants per square meter. So at the bottom of that curve is seven plants per square meter and the top of that curve is 28 plants per square meter. So as we increase plant numbers, we're increasing biomass and the yield is going up, which is opposite to what we just saw before. These are the early sowing dates we're looking at here. And harvest index went down. So we had more plants, more biomass and a lower percent of the grain yield of the, of the mass going into grain yield. So opposite trends there. And I can bring that together for you on this chart here. The blue line is, well, so the x-axis is roughly a measure for biomass, a sort of an indicator of biomass. Blue line, when we change biomass by variety, we've got a negative response. But if we change biomass with seeding rate, we've got a positive response on the 16th of April sowing date. On the 30th April sowing date, same thing, a weak negative response of um, biomass and yield for when you're just changing the variety. But when you increase the plant density, you're getting a much more biomass and much more yield. And they're crossing over at about 20 plants per square meter. So that would suggest that maybe um, if you just think about the relationships of biomass, seed, plant number, and yield, we might be better off keeping our plant density as close to 20 plants per square meter as we can, and then changing the sowing date. So keep the seeding rate at 20, and then adjust your sowing date um, for things like disease and lodging and, and other issues that you may have rather than changing the plant numbers first and keeping your sowing date wherever you want it to go. That's all just from the perspective of biomass. What about when we bring in questions of disease and lodging? So here's data from about seeding rate and chocolate spot. Um, and we looked at variety effects on disease and fungicide effects on disease and plant density on disease. So when we increase our genetic resistance from Bendoc to Amberley, which is susceptible to MRMS, we increased our chocolate spot control. So we had, were better off by six to 20%, um, depending on whether we use fungicides or not. And across the board, Amberley was doing about 25% better than Bendoc in the presence of disease. So genetic resistance is pretty important. Uh, when we added fungicides, when we went from no fungicides to hitting it with fungicides to keep the disease out, we improved chocolate spot control for both varieties, but Bendoc more than Amberley, as you'd expect. And we increased grain yield by 50%. So fungicides last year were adding 50% to grain yield. That was um, a bigger number than I was expecting. The disease came late. It arrived uh, last week of September, right when the pods were emerging. So a vulnerable growth stage, but you know, a decent way into the season, still causing a, a huge yield penalty that fungicides were able to recover. The interesting one was seeding rates. So when we reduced plant number from 18 to 10 plants per square meter, yeah, our chocolate spot was better off by 15%. We were 15% greener, but our yield dropped by 30%. So even though 10 plants per square meter, has less chocolate spot, it has even less yield. And that's significant. It won't translate to all seasons. So this is a season where the chocolate spot started at the same time for both plant densities. 
it's possible that a high plant density causes the disease to start sooner and earlier because it's more humid and therefore there's more opportunities for chocolate spot to take off. If that happened, I don't know what would happen. But in this situation, like last year, where the disease starts at the same time and is more aggressive with a greater plant density, you're still better off with that greater plant density. Uh, next, what about seeding rate and lodging? This is a biomass adjusted lodging score. So it's the lodging score for the plot divided by how much biomass is there. And it shows somewhat theoretically, and I'll show you what the paddock would look like in a second, that as we increase plants per square meter for a mid-April or late-April sowing date, we generally decrease the amount of lodging we have per unit of biomass. So yes, those increases in plant numbers are increasing biomass, but it's offset by the support that those extra stems are giving to each other, and they're actually helping them to stand up a bit better. In the paddock, it looks a bit like this chart on the right, uh, where for the early sowing date, we are increasing lodging slightly, um, but we're still decreasing lodging by having more plants in the second sowing date. Possibly some variety effects there too, um, but interesting to see that effect of plants supporting each other, which you hear about anecdotally and, and this data would support. So all that goes to suggest that you know, if we could keep our plant density higher, shift the sowing date, uh, chocolate spot and lodging, um, you know, might still be able to be kept under control. But the last thing to think about is profitability. So here I've estimated what the effect is of uh, changing the sowing date or changing the seeding rate. Um, there's going to be some extra costs, which are in your results book. So some extra fungicides, some slow down at seeding or harvest, that sort of stuff's in there. You can see how I estimated those costs in the results book. And I compiled all the data that from the last six or seven years of trials. Uh, in this table, we're looking at basically a two to three week change in sowing date. So if you sowed in mid-April or late April, rather than two to three weeks after that, what happens to profitability? We've got our lowest response from trials, our average and our highest response to trials. And for a price sensitivity, we've got $350 per ton, which is the long-term average at Geelong, plus or minus $100. And you can see that in the worst case scenario, uh, sowing two to, three, two to three weeks earlier in that window, we're better off by $60 per ton, per hectare, sorry. And in the best case scenario, with the best grain price and the best response we recorded, we're increasing profitability by a whole $500 per hectare, but the average is around 270. For seeding rate, it's similar, but a little bit different. If we were to sow at 25 plants per square meter rather than 15 plants per square meter, our worst case scenario, we're actually losing a little bit of money per hectare because of the extra costs associated with the seed and having to slow down at, at sowing to get that amount of seed out in the paddock. The best case scenario is even better than the sowing date, um, but that's a, that's a huge number, but um, that was last year and there's not gonna be many 2021s coming presumably in the future. So that's absolute best case scenario and the average is more around $180 extra per hectare, which is not quite as good as the, as the effective sowing date in average conditions. So that's, uh, that's all the data. So now I have a, a proposed canopy management strategy for the Victorian high rainfall zone. 
It's not the manifesto for the one and only canopy management strategy, but it's just a way of saying, if your farm perfectly was perfectly reflected by this data set, if this data absolutely reflected your conditions, what would it be saying you should do? Of course, your paddock is not exactly the same as the trials that we ran, so you'll have to factor some things in for yourself. But it would suggest that we should keep the seeding rate where it is, keep it as close to 20 plants per square meter as possible, adjust the sowing date for disease, lodging, and heat and moisture stress. And you would do that on a paddock by paddock basis. So for the bad paddocks, which means you've got low growth and there's risk of moisture stress in spring, sow those beans at the beginning of the sowing program, something like mid-April. And in the good paddocks, which means high growth, bulky crops, and you know reasonably um, confident there's gonna be moisture in spring, you can sow those beans in the middle or the end of the program. And that would be a way to balance the trade-offs between biomass yield disease and lodging. So that's where we're at. That's uh, the data and what it would suggest. Uh, it would be nice to move past this point and get to a point where we can get higher yields without the headaches. Um, and so I'll just point out a couple of things that we're looking at. From our agronomy work, it would suggest that early phenology would help. Um, if we could get some varieties from the breeders that have that flower earlier, we could sow them later which means we, you know, we still flower at the same time, but we have less biomass and that could be good. Better disease resistance, as you're sure, I'm sure you know, would help uh, maintain yield potential, but also help us feel more comfortable about sowing earlier. And addressing soil constraints is an interesting one. It's possible that it would increase pod set and that could be um, very helpful too. Just you have to juggle extra growth alongside that as well. So there are a few things that I recently, um, suggested to the breeders who are here at the University of Adelaide that they could keep thinking about. Uh, in my PhD, I'm gonna look back at all of the 20 varieties that have been released in Australia and just have a look at what's been coming along for the ride in terms of traits um, as we've been selecting for higher yield. That might help guide where we go in the future for breeding. And I'm going to use Abstin to quantify what a season looks like from a beans point of view. So by defining what stress and the timing of stress looks like in beans, that helps breeders know how to select um, varieties for specific environments like ours, which is very different from the medium and low rainfall zones. Uh, looking forward, and then I'll be playing around some other traits, which doesn't matter so much. So anyway, coming back to 2022, the last thing you've got to get right as we come into sowing is to inoculate uh, the beans. So a few things. Get a predictor R-naught test. That gives you a, a measure of your background rhizobia. Uh, if your agronomist can do predictor B tests, they can do predictor R-naught tests for you. And that um, gives you confidence about whether you should be going hard on the inoculant or whether you can actually pair it back a bit. There's some new GRDC fact sheets, which are really good. Um, SFS was a part of the projects that contributed to getting these published and they've just come out. So you've got an inoculant and seed treatment fact sheet a doubling inoculant rates fact sheet and inoculating legumes and acid soils fact sheets. They're all really good. They're on the website. Go ahead and look them up. And if you're still worried, just double the inoculant rate. That will give you some confidence for your inoculation this year. 
that's it for me. Thanks very much. That was James Manson, PhD student of Adelaide University and former SFS Senior Research and Extension Officer at the SFS 2022 Results Morning. For more information, check out the description box or www.sfs.org.au. Don't forget to comment, like and share this podcast. I'm Michelle McClure. Thanks for listening.